Hello everyone and welcome to the History of Tammany Hall, Episode 6, The Botanical Expedition. Thanks for joining us in this second installment of our series on Aaron Burr, a pivotal figure in the history of the Tammany Society. Last time we looked at Burr's early life and career with a particular emphasis on his activities during the American Revolution. Now we'll carry the story into the early 1790s, the years in which he really became an influential national figure. The plan for this episode is to use Burr's rise as an entry point for the broader political culture of this period. These first years after the ratification of the Constitution are among the most pivotal in all of American history. The president for most of the decade was, of course, George Washington, a figure of near-universal respect and admiration. His administration helped establish many of the traditions and institutions that still remain at the core of American government today. Yet, Washington's two unanimous elections to the presidency masked a far more turbulent reality. Contemporaries were constantly alarmed by the threat of war and revolution. While some of these concerns may strike us as slightly hyperbolic in retrospect, they speak to a fundamental disquiet in the minds of many American observers during these years. Factional disputes were intense. This era saw the slow birth of America's first political party system as the Federalists and the Democratic-Republicans came into being. To be sure, even by the end of the decade, these entities were still far off from what we would recognize as fully formed political parties today. Organization and discipline were minimal. Still, if nothing else, there was an increasing recognition that a Republican system of government would require some degree of oppositional politics. In this episode, we'll take a look at the early steps in that process, with a particular emphasis on how various factions responded to Treasury Secretary Alexander Hamilton's economic plans. One last note, we'll be going through this period at a pretty quick pace. For anyone looking for more detail on these events, I heartily recommend Jerry Landry's History of the United States podcast. His coverage of the Washington and Adams administration is remarkably thorough and thoughtful. Do yourself a favor and check it out. By the end of the last episode, we'd seen Aaron Burr take his first tentative steps into the world of New York politics. In the mid-1780s, he served a single, not particularly distinguished term in the state legislature. However, by 1787, he'd returned to private life, and he did not play a significant role in the debates surrounding the ratification of the Constitution. In 1789, however, Burr's political ascent began in earnest. Surprisingly enough, some of his initial actions were made as an ally of Alexander Hamilton. By this time, Burr and Hamilton had known each other for more than a decade. They first met in 1776 as young soldiers during the Battle of Manhattan. As we discussed last time, Burr resented the group of officers on Washington's staff who benefited from the general's favoritism. While there is no evidence of direct animosity between Burr and Hamilton from this period, Hamilton was more or less the poster child of that clique. After the war, Burr and Hamilton crossed paths regularly, 
as two of the most successful and ambitious lawyers in New York City. They were often on opposing sides of the Tory expropriation cases that dominated the city's bar in these years. Outside the courtroom, relations between the two were somewhat frosty. Hamilton, in particular, seemed to regard Burr with suspicion. When Burr started to gain a political following, he dismissed the rival's supporters as, quote, Burr's Myrmidons. Despite this budding rivalry, Burr and Hamilton found themselves on the same side in the gubernatorial election of 1789. By this time, Governor George Clinton had been in office for over a decade. With his rock-solid base among the small farmers of the Hudson Valley, Clinton was by far the most powerful figure on New York's political scene. Hamilton and his fellow Federalists recognized that they would not be able to unseat the incumbent governor on their own. Instead, they threw their support behind Judge Robert Yates, a one-time Clinton supporter and an anti-Federalist. Still, Hamilton reasoned that Yates was a more moderate alternative to Clinton, who was capable of winning the support of both Federalists and anti-Federalists. On the surface, Burr's support for Yates is somewhat more puzzling. In later years, his opponents would point to his deviation from Clinton as a sign of his political shiftiness. However, Burr was a personal friend of Yates, who had helped the young lawyer gain admission to the state bar. Accordingly, he worked alongside Hamilton as a pro on a pro-Yates correspondence committee. The Yates campaign ultimately went down in defeat, and Clinton won his fifth term. However, the result was close enough that the ever-wily governor recognized he would need to take steps to break up this potential alliance between Federalists and more moderate New York City-based anti-Federalists like Burr. Clinton's opportunity came in September of 1789, when State Attorney General Richard Varick stepped down to become mayor of New York. The governor had the power to name Varick's successor, and he picked Burr, giving the young lawyer his first taste of statewide office. Clinton was clearly impressed with the organizational skills that Burr had demonstrated during the governor's race. Burr's appointment was part of a broader effort by Clinton to recalibrate his political base following the ratification of the Constitution. At the center of this project was the wealthy and powerful Livingston family. By this point, the family was led by Chancellor Robert Livingston, New York's highest judicial officer. For most of the 1780s, Robert Livingston was identified as a moderate Whig. However, he had a tendency to waffle between the two poles, as represented by the populist Clinton on the one side and the more conservative Schuyler Hamilton faction on the other. Livingston had supported ratification of the Constitution, and he gave well-received speeches for this position at the Poughkeepsie Convention. However, despite administering the oath of office at Washington's inauguration in April 1789, the Chancellor soon fell out with the new federal administration. As Washington made his initial appointments to the executive and judicial branches, he named Hamilton as his Secretary of the Treasury and John Jay as the first Supreme Court Chief Justice. Wary of placing too many New Yorkers in powerful positions, 
Washington excluded Levingston and his family from the administration. The Chancellor was none too pleased with this slight. Clinton, for his part, was quick to recognize an opportunity when he saw one. By appointing Burr as Attorney General, the governor hoped to build the young lawyer's statewide stature so he could emerge as a credible candidate in the 1791 Senate election. From there, Burr would appoint Morgan Lewis, Livingston's brother-in-law, to replace Burr as AG, thus solidifying the alliance between the Clinton and Livingston factions. Burr's election to the Senate was far from guaranteed. His opponent was none other than incumbent Philip Schuyler, Hamilton's father-in-law and the nominal leader of the New York's Federalists. For Hamilton, then, the election took on a distinctly personal flavor. As Burr noted, there, quote, was uncommon animosity and eagerness in the opposition. At this time, federal senators were not elected by direct popular vote, but were nominated and selected by the two houses of the state legislature. Hamilton and his allies crafted an anti-Burr message to appeal to the state lawmakers. A common theme in this campaign was Burr's supposedly grasping attitude towards politics. In the words of Hamilton's acolyte Robert Troop, Burr's, quote, twistings, combinations, and maneuvers to accomplish this object are incredible. I am disgusted to my heart. This kind of striving was very much at odds with the expectations of the day. Even the most ambitious politicians were expected to cloak their designs in a show of virtuous disinterestedness. It was considered rather gauche to actually ask someone for their vote. This charge of excessive ambition would dog Burr throughout his career. Ultimately, Federalist distaste for Burr was unable to overcome the new alliance between Clinton and Livingston, whose factions could command a majority within the legislature. Burr was elected, first in a narrow vote in the Assembly, and then by a wider margin in the State Senate. Schuyler's defeat was understandably a bitter pill for Hamilton. Burr recognized this, writing, quote, I have reason to believe that my election will be unpleasing to several persons now in Philadelphia. End quote. From this point, Hamilton's vague sense of distrust of Burr would blossom into more overt animosity. On the other hand, Burr's status as a rising power in New York politics was solidified in the spring of 1792 when Clinton sought a remarkable sixth term as governor. Clinton's challenger, John Jay, led in the initial vote count. However, the Clintonites alleged voting irregularities in three pro-federalist counties upstate. A canvassing committee, which was tasked with certifying the vote, sought written opinions from Burr and his fellow senator, Federalist Rufus King. Making full use of his extensive legal talents, Burr drafted a persuasive brief arguing that the votes from the pro-J counties should be excluded. The canvassing committee agreed, and the revised vote total allowed Clinton to declare victory by a narrow margin. Burr, naturally, always maintained that sound legal arguments, rather than narrow political interest, guided his pro-Clinton opinion. 
However, the Federalists were furious, and they accused Burr of stealing the election to repay his political patron. As one Federalist commentator put it, quote, We have, as it were, two chief magistrates, one, the governor by the voice of God and the people, and another, the governor of Mr. Burr and the canvassers. Burr assumed his Senate seat on October 24, 1791, in the nation's temporary capital of Philadelphia. Though only two and a half years had passed since Washington's inauguration, the sense of national unity that that moment represented was now a distant memory. By this time, national politics was defined by an increasing sense of factionalism. It is still too early to speak of formal political parties. Instead, it is more accurate to say that Congress was divided between pro-administration and anti-administration groupings. These dividing lines were always permeable. An individual member of Congress might support the Washington administration on one issue and oppose it on another. Such decisions were likely to be as based on personal self-interest or regional biases as high-minded ideology. For now, I'd like to focus on one of the first sources of what Washington would later decry as, quote, the spirit of party, Hamilton's ambitious plans to reshape the American economy. In a series of four reports issued to Congress in 1790 and 1791, Treasury Secretary Alexander Hamilton announced proposals that, if enacted, would revolutionize the American economic system. The first of these reports on the public credit was released in January of 1790, just a few months after Hamilton assumed office. The Americans had racked up a huge amount of government debt, some $79 million, during and after the Revolution. This debt represented a huge portion of the country's overall economic output. At the core of Hamilton's plan was a proposal for the federal government to assume the obligation of paying all domestic debt, including the roughly $25 million owed by the various state governments. He did not plan to pay off these debts in the short term. Rather, he would consolidate them into a large and permanent national debt. The federal government would, of course, make regular interest payments on this debt, but the principal would remain largely untouched. The second report, submitted to Congress in the December of 1790, uh, called for the creation of a national bank. This bank would have the authority to lend money to the government, extend credit to private businesses, and issue uniform paper currency. Hamilton released two additional reports on the creation of a national mint and the development of domestic manufacturing over the course of 1790. At the risk of oversimplification, I'd like to identify two major consequences of Hamilton's plans, one economic and the other political. First, the Treasury Secretary clearly hoped to further the financialization of the American economy. In the years after the Revolution, financiers had bought up cheap American debt as a speculative instrument. Many Americans saw this as a troubling development. Hamilton, however, thought that this behavior should be encouraged. 
he saw this kind of financial speculation as a necessary source of investment which would spur the development of the American economy. Furthermore, he hoped that the prospect of regular and reliable interest payments would make an American debt an attractive resource for financiers around the world. Great Britain was clearly Hamilton's economic model. Over the course of the 18th century, an ever-expanding national debt, which was managed by the Bank of England, had, alongside a growing global empire, helped turn the UK into the world's foremost economic superpower. Before long, this model would enable the British to bankroll more than two decades of nearly uh, continuous war on the European continent following the French Revolution. The second political goal of Hamilton's plan was the centralization of power in the hands of a new and improved federal government. Under the Articles of Confederation, the national government held remarkably limited economic powers. Congress was not even authorized to le levy taxes. Hamilton, however, believed that the ratification of the new Constitution presented him with an opportunity to extend the federal government's power significantly. The permanent national debt and the national bank created major new revenue sources which would permit the federal government to drive America's future economic development. Given the scale of Hamilton's proposal, it is not surprising that they were met with skepticism and even outright hostility from several directions. On the level of national politics, anti-administration feeling coalesced around two prominent figures, Representative James Madison and Secretary of State Thomas Jefferson. It was a somewhat awkward position for both of these Virginians. Madison had, until very recently, been a political ally of Hamilton's, as they helped craft the new Constitution's more centralized system. In 1789, Madison's role was so pivotal that he has been credited with drafting both Washington's inaugural address and Congress's response to that address. Yet, by 1790, he took on a vocal role in opposing the administration's economic policies. Most notably, Madison introduced a counter-proposal, which would require the federal government to compensate the original holders of government debt, often revolutionary veterans and their families, rather than the current holders who had bought this debt at bargain prices during the 1780s. For Madison, the administration's proposals smacked of unfair favoritism for the New York and Philadelphia-based financiers who were among Hamilton's strongest backers. As Madison noted at the time, quote, there must be something wrong, radically and morally and politically wrong, in a system which transfers the reward from those who paid the most valuable of considerations to those who scarcely paid any consideration at all. This skepticism towards speculative capitalism was common among many in the anti-administration camp. If anything, Jefferson's position was even more uncomfortable than Madison's. As a prominent member of the Washington administration, the Secretary of State was initially unwilling to oppose his fellow cabinet members' proposals in public. 
Hoping to smooth things over, Jefferson helped broker the so-called Compromise of 1790, in which Madison agreed to support Hamilton's debt proposal in return for a promise to move the national capital south from New York City, first to Philadelphia on a temporary basis, and then to a new city on the banks of the Potomac River. However, in time, Jefferson's ideological opposition to Hamilton's program became more pronounced. Far more than Madison, Jefferson harbored a persistent fear of excessive governmental power. His Republican politics were grounded in a romantic pastoralism. As he famously wrote in, at an earlier date, quote, those who labor in the earth are the chosen people of God, if ever he had a chosen people. Jefferson believed that the American Republic could only thrive if the bulk of the citizens were self-reliant farmers. Hamilton's support for bankers and speculators went wholly against the grain of this vision. Of course, we shouldn't overlook the fact that Jefferson's conception of self-reliant agriculture allowed for slave labor. In this fraught context, it was no surprise that congressional responses to Hamilton's plans took on a distinctly sectional character, with opposition based in the South. In part, this was a matter of self-interest. Other than South Carolina, the southern states, including most notably Virginia, had largely retired their wartime debt by this time. They saw no reason for the federal government to bail out their less fortunate neighbors. More broadly, the agrarian South was a hotbed of the anti-banker thinking we've already seen expressed by both Madison and Jefferson. Many leading Virginia planters were themselves deeply indebted, a state of affairs that surely caused some resentment among these proud men. What's more, while the plantation economy depended on foreign markets for produce, they did not have any particular interest in developing a more powerful American financial and mercantile system. Finally, uh, before moving on, we should note that support for states' rights and opposition to expanded federal power have been a hallmark of Southern politics throughout much of American history. In many cases, this feeling was grounded in a fear that northern abolitionists would someday gain the power to mandate an end to slavery nationwide. At this early date, however, this remained a remote prospect. Abolitionists were able to insert emancipation clauses in a number of northern state constitutions. However, their power in Congress was limited, thanks in part to the three-fifths clause of the Constitution. As of the early 1790s, there was no realistic path towards extending uh, abolition below the Mason-Dixon line. Jefferson and Madison recognized that they would have to forge alliances beyond their southern base of support if they hoped to develop a national movement that could challenge Hamilton's Federalist project. While the Federalists were strong throughout the North, particularly in New England, there were plenty of areas where the anti-administration faction could hope to make inroads. In New York, as we've seen, yeomen and tenant farmers had helped keep Governor Clinton in power since the 1770s. 
Like the agrarian southerners, these farmers were generally suspicious of government power, and they had no great love for New York City's mercantile class. Like Clinton, they had sympathized with the Anti-Federalists during the ratification debate. Even in Hamilton's home base of New York City, Jefferson and Madison could hope to find some support among urban artisans and mechanics, the so-called middling sort. In contrast to their upstate counterparts, these workers had supported ratification of the Constitution. As we saw back in episode 4, they had generally believed that their economic interests were aligned with those of the city's mercantile and financial elites. However, their political instincts remained republican and egalitarian. They could potentially be convinced that Hamilton's plans favored the interests of the wealthy few at the expense of the working many. It was in this context that Jefferson and Madison set off on their famous botanical expedition of New York and New England in the spring of 1791. As the name suggests, the ostensible reason for this trip was to give the Virginians an opportunity to study the plant life of the northern states. This was not entirely implausible. Jefferson, in particular, was an accomplished naturalist who maintained a keen interest in the flora and fauna of North America. However, unsurprisingly, rumors spread about the hidden political purpose of the trip. As we've already discussed, politics was a dirty word at this time. It was considered beneath the dignity of distinguished statesmen like Jefferson and Madison to participate in the grubby business of building partisan organizations and forging political alliances. Jefferson and Madison would have every reason to keep their political designs under wraps. According to the speculation, both at the time and in later historical accounts, Jefferson and Madison hoped to make contact with friendly northerners in the hopes of building a broad national anti-administration coalition. Particular targets included Governor Clinton, Chancellor Livingston, and Burr, who had just recently been chosen by the state legislature as New York's next senator. Hamilton's friend Robert Troop was in no doubt about the true purpose of this trip. Uh, in a letter to the Secretary of the Treasury, he wrote, quote, There was every appearance of a passionate courtship between the Chancellor, Burr, Jefferson, and Madison when the latter two were in town. Delenda est Cartago, I suppose, is the maxim adopted with respect to you. They had better be quiet, for if they succeed, they will tumble the fabric of the government in ruins to the ground. End quote. Over time, this botanical expedition has entered American political lore. When John F. Kennedy first started campaigning outside his native Massachusetts in the 1960 presidential primaries, he was fond of telling his audience about the expedition and concluded by saying, quote, But I'm not looking for butterflies, I'm looking for votes. I'll spare you my JFK impersonation. Historians still debate whether the trip had an underlying political purpose. For what it's worth, one Jefferson biographer has concluded, quote, If any alliance or bargains were struck with Livingston, Burr, Clinton, or anyone, they were very secret indeed, for they have left no traces. 
Still, it was clear that a national anti-administration coalition was taking shape. It is around this time that historians start referring to the anti-administration faction as the Republicans. I'm going to follow this somewhat arbitrary historical convention and use that less clunky name for the group around Jefferson and Madison. The Republicans would face their first national test in the vice presidential election of 1792. Opponents of the administration lacked both the capacity and the inclination to directly challenge Washington for the presidency. However, they saw a far more vulnerable target in Vice President John Adams. Jefferson, of course, would have been the natural challenger in the race. However, under the rules then governing the Electoral College, electors could not vote for two candidates from their own state. Thus, Virginia's electors could not vote for both Washington and Jefferson. Rather than throw away their chances in the country's most populous state, the Republicans decided to pick a non-Virginian and ultimately settled on George Clinton as their standard-bearer. With his personal popularity in a competitive state and strong anti-federalist credentials, New York's longtime governor was a natural pick. However, Burr for his part put his name out there for the Republican nomination. He sent out feelers to allies in New York and Pennsylvania suggesting that Clinton's controversial re-election would make him more of a liability than an asset in the Empire State. However, Madison in particular viewed Clinton as the more reliable candidate, and the Virginians refused to support Burr. Arguably, Jefferson and his allies saw the older and less dynamic Clinton as less of a threat to their control of the National Party. The young senator from New York resented this slight, and we can now see an early split between Burr and the Southern Jeffersonians. In the end, Clinton's campaign for the vice presidency fell short and Adams was elected to a second term. However, the New York governor made a fairly strong showing winning the electoral votes of Virginia, North Carolina, Georgia, and his home state. He would have won the election if he had carried Pennsylvania. We will never know if the botanical expedition had an underlying political purpose. However, the Federalists were clearly right that the Republicans had an interest in forging a coalition between the South and the large states of the North. Well, I think that will just about do it for today. I had hoped to get a little further into our story, but I think I've gone on long enough. We'll pick up our story next time with more on the development of the political parties in the 1790s. In the meantime, please do follow the show on Twitter and Instagram, or feel free to shoot me an email at TammanyHallPodcast at gmail.com. And hey, while you're at it, why not rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts? I would appreciate that and would uh, help us get the show out there a little more. Thanks for listening.